This is Splice. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hey, Jan. Hey. How's it going, guys? How's it going, man? Good, good. Thanks for inviting me. So excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can hear in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. I'm recording. Red lights on. Red lights on. Welcome to Splice Lo-Fi. It's September 10th, 2021. I hope all of you had some really nice 9.9 deals yesterday. This is our weekly live audio check-in with the Splice community to see what everybody's up to. And it's the 21st time we're doing this, so we're still on a roll. Uh, as always, we, we're recording this and we're going to be putting this out as a podcast. Uh, so speak openly, uh, but if you want to be taken off the record, just let us know and we'll take you out in post. Otherwise, this is going to go out on the internet just as it is. Um, also, put yourself on mute if you're not speaking. Remember to unmute yourself when you speak. And of course, this is a conversation. So throw in your questions, jump in whenever. Uh, use a Telegram chat group if you've got uh, some questions that you have, but you don't want to you don't want to come, um, you don't want to be heard. Um, and of course, uh, Lo-Fi is a podcast, so if you can't stick around for the entire session, just look it up in your podcast app. Our superstar guest today is our good friend Jan Oak, founder of Thebe, which is a data visualization startup. Jan and his team are literally among the best data folks in the region, and we're so proud to actually work with them on a few projects in the past. We love the dedication of, of his crew Remind me, Jan, how did we meet? Yeah, hi, Richard. Uh, yeah, I I think I met up with Alan for coffee one time. Uh, and then I think I met you at one of those like pub hangouts that we used to do in the before times. Oh, at Little Creatures or something. <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. I remember, yeah. Which is, like... which is no longer, by the way, they, they shut down. Oh, too bad. Oh, is yeah. that right? I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's one of the splice on tap uh, things we used to do. Yeah, it's been a while. I think the last time was, yeah, who knows? In fact, right, right at the beginning of the of what we then discovered was going to be a pandemic, and I still have that big group photo that we all that we all took. Uh, uh, no social distancing back then. We didn't have our pandemic manners. Jan, how did we how did we get here? How did you how did you arrive? at this point where you know your work is becoming more and more re relevant to the info community the journalism community and the training community but do you identify as a journalist at this point i don't really i i don't think i'm a journalist at all i guess uh sometimes i help uh people who are doing journalism uh sometimes uh, very rarely i i do write articles as well but uh, most of the time I, I would say i'm a supporter of journalists and supporter of media organizations. So my primary thing is working with data, uh, storytelling with data. And if you were to ask me how did I end up here, it's quite random, I think. I, I never planned to, to do this, uh, but I, it kind of evolved towards this. And the interesting thing with a lot of people who work in data journalism is that's kind of like a common story. People very rarely kind of decide when they're going to university, oh, I'm going to be a data journalist. Um, they kind of come in from all sorts of different other disciplines, and then they land on data storytelling, and they're like, this is what I want to do. Yeah, but what's what's your story, though? You studied economics at university. So, mm -hmm. what you know, somewhere, somehow, all, that, all those skills that you learned at, at uni must have kind of 
nudged you in this direction, I guess? So uh, I started off actually, uh, I graduated uh, in the middle of the, the worldwide recession. So I didn't really have a job. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll probably just go back to school, I guess. So I went uh, and did a master's. Uh, and then I didn't have any plans for what I'll do after my master's. So I decided to become a high school teacher for a bit. Um, but during the whole time, uh, I had like, uh, I think three things that came together that kind of nudged me in this direction. Uh, one was, uh, as you say, my, my background in economics. So I was, uh, I had been working at, at, as a research, research assistant and stuff like that. So I was, um, I did have a background in data analysis. Um, the other thing was I, I was learning to code, uh, while I was working as a, as a teacher. Uh, and so, I really got interested in uh, web development and kind of uh, doing, working with data with code, right? Which is, you know, uh, you know data science as, as, as it's called right now. And the other thing was I loved, I found a love for explaining things to people. Um, so of course with, with your students, you have to constantly be explaining things to, to, to them, but that was also kind of the time when explainer journalism became a thing. Uh, so I would never kind of think of myself as uh, uh, someone who kind of like goes and hunt for the stories and like, you know, talk to people um, to get, you know, an investigative story or anything like that. But if you gave me a bunch of data and, and asked me to, you know, figure out this complex thing, figure out all the data behind it and, you know, tell a story, uh, to explain that this concept, then I'm totally game for that kind of thing. So I think those are the three things that kind of came together that nudged me in that direction. Okay, so a little explainer here would be useful, right? So when we say data journalism, and there's a lot of training that's out there, a lot of this, a lot of people are using this as a as a label to describe, you know, some kind of form of journalism. What do you think is most misunderstood when when that label is being used? I think. Especially now, right? Especially since COVID hit, uh, data journalism has been really front and center. For example, uh, some of the biggest newsrooms like Washington Post, the, their most read stories of all time now are data stories because during COVID, people realized that, you know, understanding you know, the quantitative background behind all the stuff that's happening is super important. Um, but one misunderstanding, I would say, is that people look at data journalism as if it's just the, the end product, right? The, the fancy visualizations that you see in a lot of these stories. Um, but I would say most of the work that you have to do in kind of creating a data story is not the visualization part. Uh, it's all the stuff where you're trying to look for the data, trying to verify the data, trying to clean the data. Uh, trying to kind of uh, look at different avenues, like uh, looking at one data set, and then if you don't find a story there, you know, going back and looking at another one. Um, so those are the parts uh, that really kind of underpin what a good story is. Uh, and the harder, the, the the less obvious the source of the data, I think the the better the story is, right? Just like in traditional journalism, if you can find some angle, some place that nobody has looked at before, that will make for a better story. It's the same with data. If you had to kind of dig through like 200 like government issued PDF documents to get the data, that will be uh, that will make for a much interesting data source than something you just download uh, off of a off of a data portal and you know, 
uh, make a visualization out of there. Just from listening to what you're saying, DataViz is so much about the journalism, obviously, but there's this forensic element. It's how you present things. It's numbers, stats. Uh, there's a training element to it because, you know, um, that's kind of the role that you take on. There's a visual design uh, component, obviously. There's a dev and code. I mean, good data people are like unicorns. Um, you know, why aren't more people doing this? Yeah. Is it a lack of training? What What's what, what's going on there? I think a lot of things are uh, going on, but I think, yeah, the unicorn thing comes up quite a lot. And in the spaces of like people who do data visualization or data journalism, I think that's one problem that people have really identified in terms of the barrier to entry. Uh, because, uh, you know, like this, you know, the, the old kind of cliche that you have your non-technical boss who's like, oh, I know a computer guy. He, I know like a tech guy. He'll solve all your tech problems. It's something like that for data journalism. Uh, so you have kind of editors or, or uh, you know, people who run newsrooms who maybe want to do data journalism, but they're like, we want a data guy. And like, this is this one guy and they, you're expected to know everything about it. Uh, and that's kind of what people are looking for because they don't really recognize that it's such a multifaceted skill set. So one of the organizations that uh, I work with called School of Data, their motto is data is a team sport. Right. So you need the people who are, you know, going to do just digging into the documents to do the analysis. You need the people who are going to kind of translate between, you know, the, the human stories and the hard technical stuff. You need the designers who are going to make your final presentation look nice. And yeah, all of those things have to come together to have a good data story. Um, and it's really hard to find a place where you can get trained for all those skills. Like, like I was saying before, a lot of people kind of just stumble into this field and there's not a lot of places. There are some uh, like degree programs and things like that now, but they're still also quite elite. Uh, you have like, you know, you have to go to like Columbia General Zone School and, you know, uh, get in debt for hundreds of thousands of dollars to get like a good uh, data journalism degree. Uh, yeah, so it's it's something where there's a mix of skills that you need, but I don't think newsrooms uh, are willing right now to invest in like hiring five people at once in order to get like a uh, a data shop in their newsroom. Yeah, that's very true. You know, I, I've noticed that that a lot of uh, maybe not a lot, maybe some newsroom managers tend to be quite quite reluctant to uh, to provide or or you know to release their stuff. Uh, for this kind of training, because it's just seemed to be too remote and too abstract, and it's never quite clear what they will get from it, right? And uh, and so the the reluctance is definitely there on on managers' side. Um, what what do you think is the best way to explain the value of this work uh, and these types of skills? Yeah, um, good question. <laughs> so it ha well, so I've I've tried to explain to editors um, that that I've been working with for. A for some years. And one thing I do notice is that at least, you know, uh, in, in countries in Southeast Asia, if you were to talk to editors back in say 2017, this was still like a far-fetched thing for them. They probably seen, um, good data pieces come out in, you know, places in the West, uh, you know, your classic New York Times, Washington Post kind of places. 
And they just, just think, oh, this is too far-fetched. This is not a priority for us. But going back and talking to the same people in 2019, 2020, the attitude has, has completely changed and they really want to kind of make this front and center uh, for their newsrooms. That doesn't mean they have kind of the, the right uh, ingredients to get there. Um, and one thing I think that it, they, they see reluctance in is, you know, if this, this is going to be a huge investment for us and we have to get like, you know, five more people or like, you know, hire these contractors for expensive, et cetera, et cetera. What is the return we're going to get on this investment? Um, you know, we can like pour all this resources into just creating, uh, you know, a, a very good YouTube channel for our media organization. And that probably will get a lot more traction than, you know, uh, setting up a, a data outfit. And, you know, in some ways that's, that's, um, they have a point, right? Uh, it, it is a big investment. Yeah, this this ROI angle is is an interesting one for me because you know I can imagine that if I were a newsroom manager and I'm looking at this and the cost of all of this and the cost of having someone sit and work on this for you know weeks or months on end to create one final output, I think that is is a is a very difficult decision to make. Um, what have you seen that's interesting from a monetization point of view? Have you seen anyone who's taken projects like that, monetized it well, and you know some something that that adds value not just the the uh, the users but also to to the newsroom themselves in terms of of revenue. So one outfit, um, uh, so two two outfits, right? Uh, one that's very famous uh, is called the Pudding. Uh, they're based out of the U.S. So they are a data driven newsroom um, uh, first and foremost. But by showcasing in the articles that they write how well they can do this kind of data storytelling, uh, they've been able to do client work kind of doing the same kind of thing uh, for organizations, for brands and things like that. And if they have like a five-person newsroom running uh, profitably. And in Southeast Asia, we've, we have examples of that kind of approach as well. So for example, Continentalist based out of Singapore, uh, they also started out as completely kind of just a, a data-driven newsroom. They only do data-driven articles. And in the past year or two, they've done a lot of client work. And if you look at Thailand, there's also Punch Up, which is also another outfit that's also going with that with that angle. So if you can invest and build expertise into this discipline, uh, it will pay off. Uh, but there's still a steep learning curve, I think. I remember just listening to you talk, I remember watching that DataViz superstar Hans Rosling, you know, ages and ages ago um, for the first time. And I was just immediately hooked by this magical new way of telling stories. Who are your big role models, Jan? Oh, well, yeah, uh, Hans Rosling, definitely. That uh, I still remember watching his first, the TED Talk, like the same one that you, you, you are referring to way back, right? Um, There's so many. Uh, I would say right off the top of my head, I think uh, there, there's in data biz and data storytelling, there are uh, people who do these kind of like uh, side projects that are really cool. Uh, so there's, there's these two women, uh, her, Nadia Brema and Shirley Wu, who have this project called Data Sketches. And what they do is every month they decided to work on a work on a, a data viz that's on a particular topic. So one month, it'll be like uh, 
families and another month it'll be like nostalgia and they created this whole series of really beautiful data stories um so one of them i think shirley did a visualization of every line from the the, the musical hamilton um and it was wonderful you guys could should go check them out if you haven't already and now they've kind of um published a book uh, sitting on my shelf definitely um and they are like two freelancers who really have dedication to the craft and i would love to be able to uh do data storing start storytelling at that level one day definitely uh other inspirations that i have i would definitely say the pudding the whole team there i really like their approach of taking this whole thing as as a business instead of just uh kind of uh unicorn freelancer kind of approach uh because i think a lot of people who are working in this field are the one person in the newsroom or uh the one person who works with multiple partners but is just still a one person shop but the pudding they really made it uh as a team as a company as a business and uh, they do fantastic work as well so that's definitely uh, uh an inspiration to me yeah, the pudding is fantastic. Um, so just just between you and I here, um, <laughs> have you ever thought of starting up something like the pudding? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I so so I guess I, I should get into what I actually do for a living. <laughs> so I, I run a, a, a consultancy called BB, and we do work uh, on in the boundary between data and design, basically. So we do. We take a human-centered design approach to figuring out how to work with an organization's data. So that's pretty vague, but it could range from something like we take the data you have and kind of transform it into a, a public-facing data story. It might be something like we figure out what the needs for the needs are for your stakeholders and kind of uh, you know clean your data and like make it into a, a more manageable uh, workflow inside your organization. Uh, sometimes we build entire uh, applications and tools. Uh, so that has been what I've been doing for the last three years with my team. That's currently about 10 people. Um, and we definitely would love to do more public facing work like the pudding does. Uh, but, you know, for the past three years, we've just been knee deep in, in working with, with our partners. So a lot of the work that we do you don't see it uh, in, in public either because um, it's working with sensitive partners who might not want to share this publicly or uh, it's uh, an internal project within their organization. So if I were to lean on you a little bit and, mm -hmm. and ask, uh, you know, tell us about the work you're doing for your clients. Maybe don't name the clients, but it yeah. would be cool to get us. Uh, like a sense of you know are you doing maps for a uh english uh language news company in yangon or what you know whatever yeah. Uh. yeah so that's one project that we can definitely talk about so uh we're working with uh an ngo uh, an international international ngo that uh, does a lot of work in Myanmar, and we're building a biodiversity portal so they have worked in Myanmar since the mid nineties and they have a lot of data on, you know, this is, these are all the natural parks. These are all the endangered species. They've, you know, they've done so much research. 
and they have like photos of all these endangered species, like very beautiful, like hand sketched illustrations of like different species of turtles and things like that. So we're putting all of that together in, in one big portal. Uh, so, you know, someone can go in and look at, you know, here are the ecosystems of the country. Here are all the you know species that live, live in these places. Uh, and yeah, and all this kind of information. So that's something that we've been busy with for, for most of this year. So like this is the kind of stuff that we can that we can uh, hire you for. So what else can you know can our community hire you for? But like, how would I what would I what would I do to reach out to TB or Jan? Would it be training like if I needed you to come in and train two people or mm -hmm. give us some tools and workflows or management and operation systems? So how how would I use TB? Yeah, so we do a lot of training. Um, so right now we're doing training for uh, journalists in the, the five lower Mekong countries uh, in, to get, uh, to, in, in collaboration with the Earth Journalism Network uh, and Eva Constantaris, who, who's been a longtime collaborator of mine. So we are training a, a cohort of about 30 journalists um, and focusing on environmental issues reporting in the Mekong. So we're kind of getting them from people who know nothing about data journalism, professional journalists who, who haven't done data journalism to get to get them to the point where they can do data journalism themselves. Uh, so yeah, we do that kind of training, which is kind of multi-month engagements. So that's a whole cohort. They all do their own projects. We kind of mentor them through their projects. We teach them all the kind of the foundation skills. Or we, I've done stuff where it's just, um, that's, that's a separate data journalism. Uh, so that's a journalism training going on and they want just like a one day workshop that's only for data visualization or just an introduction to how uh, data journalism works. Uh, and so I, I do that kind of thing as well. I do collaborations for, so for example, uh, I've worked with uh, the Straits Times to kind of work with like three or four of their journalists to to kind of just develop one story. Um, and for outfits like the Straits Times is also interesting because they do have like a really good in-house data journalism team, uh, but that team is really focused on just production. So they don't have a lot of time to train the rest of the, the journalists on data journalism skills. So I think that's another uh, challenge that big newsrooms who already are doing data journalism have, that the, the data journalism is kind of like just one part of the, the large organization, and they they want other journalists in their newsroom to pick up the skills, but it's it's hard because of you know resource constraints. All right, let's jump over for questions. Who's got questions for Jan? Uh, it's Karen. Are you surprised? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would be surprised if this had no reference to musicals. <laughs> there will be no reference to musicals. Um, yeah, that was a really fascinating um, uh, thing to learn about today. So I'm going to ask something that, especially since you brought up training other people, so I have a super basic, sorry, it might be dumb question. No, no, no. <laughs> but um, so the way you're relating your story, it, it, it relates me back to how writers have to work, where you have all sorts of data points and bits that you have to harness into one story that's, you know, valuable and is telling something. So when you're starting to craft together a piece of data journalism, is it the same where like, okay, I, this is where I think the story should be going. And then, oh no, you know what? 
this is not the right direction after all. I have to start from scratch again. Does that kind of creative process part of this? Oh yeah, definitely. So there, we, we followed this seven-step uh, process that starts from uh, coming up with a question that you suspect can be answered with with the data, and then you follow um, step by step to kind of like look for data sources and like try to kind of obtain those data so data by scraping or, or like all kinds of different methods. And then you have to check if the question that you want to do ask actually can be answered by the by the data that you have. And then if you can't, then you have to either change the question or start again. Uh, and then from there, you kind of like clean the data, analyze the data, verify the data. Uh, and only at the end, you, you kind of get the story. So yeah, it's a very kind of iterative process where just like you know, an investigative journalist would kind of have to spend months, possibly, kind of looking for different leads and seeing if um, the story that they want to tell really uh, can be told with uh, the things that are available. It's it's a very similar process, I think. So there's creativity involved, of course, in kind of the design of the final output. But that's I think that's also a lot of creativity involved in kind of strategically getting the right kind of data that's needed for your story. Who has more questions for Jan? Jump in, unmute yourself, ask on the channel, on, on Telegram, whatever you like. Otherwise, I have one. So Jan, tell us about trends. What's worth watching? What should we look out for? What are you excited about for you know database trends over the next two years? Oh, uh, one trend I would definitely say is it's getting so I think you know in web development, no code is becoming a huge trend, right? Um, I would say in database that trend started way before no code started. Uh, so a lot of a lot of people who are creating uh, data visualizations, um, they wouldn't have kind of the uh, the programming skills to make them from scratch. So ever since, you know, more than 10 years ago, people have been creating platforms that allow you to create data visualizations um, without writing any code. And I think that the tools that are out there to create visualizations have just gotten better and better and better. So for journalists, there are two particular tools um, that are used a lot. One is called Data Wrapper, and another is called Flourish. And they've gone from kind of being able to create basic charts to, you know, really being able to replace any kind of uh, visualization that you might have needed a, a developer to, to create. Uh, and so that has just, that has just made like the entry point of creating data visualizations um, much easier. And I think that continues to be the case uh, in, in the coming years, I think a lot more people will be able to make data visualizations because they they don't need to learn anything very technical. Uh, so that's one trend, yeah. Fantastic. That's really exciting. Uh, we've seen the you know we've seen huge benefits from this new uh, no code, low code kind of uh, phase that we're in right now. I think that's really beneficial for so many people. Um, let's take one more question if anyone's got one. Before we wrap this up, going once, going twice. 
All right then, Rashad, let's uh let's wrap things up, huh? Here I go. Everybody ready? Thank you so much for joining us today on Splice Lo-Fi, people. If you missed this live, this is going to be an episode in your favorite op- podcast app or on splicemedia.com slash lo-fi. Hit subscribe as well. And, you know, please tell us uh, who you'd like to hear on this thing. We do it every Friday at 11 a.m. Uh, send us your suggestions. Uh, we want, you know, we have a high bar, obviously. We have people like Jan in there. Uh, we have a lot of the folks that are actually listening to this today and, and present on the chat in there. Uh, we'd love your suggestions. Um, see you next Friday, and thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you, Jan, for, uh, for showing up today. Thanks, guys. It was really fun. This is Splice. Fantastic. That was awesome. Well, thanks, That Dave. was so good. Yeah, Yeah, and of you make course. this stuff so, so sexy. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's like so many things to 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 say, but I had to like uh, like uh, I can't I can't say everything, or I'll take two hours. <laughs>